Hello everyone, welcome and thank you for listening to the Equity Meets podcast series by Equity Labs at the University of Denver. My name is Chendu Jayton and I am the Executive Director at Equity Labs. Our show is committed to interrogating contemporary issues in diversity, equity and inclusion across disciplines, industries and contexts by leaning on the expertise of interdisciplinary thought leaders and elevating the voices of those who live in the margins. Today's episode examines how justice and equity can be integrated into business operations. Is equity work inherently at odds with capitalism? I'd like to start by introducing our guest for today's podcast. Kathleen Nolte is a lawyer, author, and an expert in DEI training. She is the recipient of multiple awards for her thought leadership in transforming organizational culture. Her long career in DEI consulting started off as a federal civil rights prosecutor. You can learn more about her work by reading her bio in our Equity Meets podcast page. So welcome to the program, Kathleen. We are really glad you could join us. Um, So thank you for your time and the expertise that you are about to share. Totally my pleasure. Thank you so much for having me. Yeah, so let's um, uh, dive right in. Um, And as we start, could you please share with us the salient identities that inform the way you do your work and um, how you are entering the conversation and then jump into, you know, how did you come into the DEI education uh, and upskilling work? Absolutely. So, you know, the story has to start a long time ago. When I was a small child, my family lived in the Deep South in Huntsville, Alabama. And at that time, it was in the midst of the civil rights movement and Jim Crow rules were still firmly in place. So I'd had very little exposure as a child, as a five-year-old, to people of color, uh, in particular Black people in the South. And one day, my mother, who was a nurse by trade, decided that she needed to take us children along with her on her visiting nurse duties. Maybe she couldn't find a a babysitter, I don't know. Anyway, I remember we pulled up in front of what could only be described as a shack in the middle of a field. And a number of African-American children ran out to greet us. And we went inside and the kids, we, we were busy playing while the adults were attending to, you know, the shots that my mother was giving them, inoculations or whatever they were doing. And I remember that the children only had one toy that they could share with us. And it was a board game in pristine condition. And in my mind at that moment, I I was in so much shock. First of all, interacting with a group of people that I really had had no experience with, given the you know societal rules that were in place at the time, but also the socioeconomic circumstances that I was confronted with. I mean, I know that my parents probably lived paycheck to paycheck, but we had a few more toys at home. 
And in that moment, my little five-year-old soul was turned inside out. And I thought to myself, this is wrong. This is so wrong. And basically from that moment forward, my whole life changed. I became committed to making those kinds of wrongs right. By the time I was in middle school and had been exposed to, you know, history lessons around our terrible history in this country with slavery, I I figured out that what I was looking at that day as a five-year-old was probably the vestiges of slavery. Maybe they were living in a sharecropper's home, maybe even slave quarters, because that shack was the most dilapidated two-room abode that I'd ever seen in my life, even since. So anyway, by the time I was in middle school, I decided that I wanted to become a lawyer so that I would have a skill set and toolkit to actually do something. And so I set my sights on law school. I actually went to the University of Denver as an undergrad. Honestly, I would have been happy to skip undergrad and go straight to law school. It was just where I wanted to end up to get those tools to be able to do something differently. So I went to the University of Colorado for law school. And after I graduated, I was given an opportunity to join the Department of Justice in Washington, D.C., where I was a federal civil rights prosecutor in the criminal section of the Civil Rights Division. So that's the unit that is in charge nationally of prosecuting hate crimes, the most most high-level, notorious hate crimes in the country are handled by that unit. Uh, Police brutality cases, which primarily at the time that I was a prosecutor, involved people of color as victims and slavery cases. So I spent four years as a prosecutor based in Washington, D.C., but our cases were all over the country. So working on those types of cases allowed me to really fulfill what is my calling. What, what is my soul's mission? Like I, I am firmly in the camp that I was sent here to do this work. It's so consuming for me. So anyway, I did that for four years and I met my husband who was a senior prosecutor in our section. He was in charge at the time of prosecuting the Ku Klux Klan, primarily in the South at that time. Of course, those white nationalist groups go by different names now. But anyway, he and I both had this passion for this work. And But when we decided to have a family, we wanted to move back to my hometown of Denver, Colorado, and start our family. And from there, my interests sort of shifted more. I became more interested in what was happening in the workplace. Because even, you know, even if he or I prosecuted, you know, a group of of people for hate crimes, we might have somewhat of an impact, you know, certainly for the victim, the victim's family, the community. 
um, perhaps, you know, um, making sure that it got a lot of publicity if we were successful and served as an example to many other people. But what I really became fascinated with was the thousand deaths that people experience on a daily basis because of the inequities that happen in the workplace. Um, you know, the microaggressions and the exclusion that can happen that can really kill people's soul and their motivation and their have an impact on every aspect of their lives. So around 2000, I had an opportunity to work at the University of Denver Law School in the Career Development Office. They specifically hired me to come and develop some diversity-related programs for the students at the law school to better integrate them into the Denver legal community. So I created a lot of new programs that are still in place in the Denver legal community and started to get a lot more support in that community for making change happen. I actually was heavily influenced by the then head of DU's Center for Multicultural Excellence, Dr. Jesus Trevino. He actually introduced me to the concept of inclusiveness because the legal profession was way behind higher education and other types of organizations in adding inclusiveness to the work of diversity. So from there, I was able to organize the Denver legal community, uh, very important leaders in that community, judges, um, corporate general counsel, as well as managing partners of law firms and brought them together to begin to talk about inclusiveness, not just diversity, and what kinds of changes they could be making within their organizations. I was the founding director of the Center for Legal Inclusiveness, which was the first organization in the entire country to basically begin this conversation around inclusiveness in the legal profession. And I, I led that organization for five years and got to a certain point where I knew that for me to grow personally and to do the kind of work that I wanted to do, I would have to leave the nonprofit and found my own organization. So that because when you're leading a nonprofit, you're spending 90% of your time raising money, chasing board members, planning meetings. And only I was only spending about 10% of my time actually teaching people about diversity, equity, and inclusion. So I wanted to flip that proposition and spend 90% of my time teaching and helping people do better on diversity, equity, and inclusion. So it's been almost 10 years now that I've had my own consulting company, and I've worked with all kinds of organizations because everyone is needing education on diversity, equity, and inclusion. There's a deep-rooted hunger out there for more information especially among people who are in already underrepresented groups. You know, they, they want their organizations to do something differently 
but most people don't know what to do to actually create the change that needs to happen in an organization. So that's what I spend my time now. 90% of my time is spent working with people in corporations, legal organizations, law firms, corporate law departments, government agencies. I've done a lot of work with the government, local, state, and federal, and nonprofits. So that's the background. That's the calling. Now, in terms of my personal salient identities, I think that my um, identity, my occupation is probably the most salient identity for me because of that deep calling to do this work. Now, of course, as a female in a male-dominated industry, I've run into some gender discrimination, but I have to tell you that, you know, being, for example, white, uh, upper socioeconomic status, all of those other identities give me a lot of privilege and I've been able to tap into that, the power that comes from having that privilege to create a lot of change, especially in the legal industry. My connection, especially with my husband, who was a federal magistrate judge, gave me access to a lot of these top level leaders in the legal industry, uh, which catapulted the, the nonprofit and the work that I was doing. So I lean heavily on my ability and and the privilege that I have with respect to certain identities to create change. Um, But really the, the, the identity that, that is driving me the most is that occupational identity of, of doing this work and doing it until I, until my last breath. Yeah, thank you so much uh, for sharing um, that journey. Uh, I want to kind of unpack a little bit of what you uh, said in there, right? Like, so you talked about how, you know, the concept of inclusion uh, wasn't where we all started, right? Like the start was just diversity, just representational diversity. As long as you get people who look a little bit different, talk a little bit different, that's good enough. So I'm wondering if you could spend a little bit of time differentiating between the terms diversity, equity, inclusion to to start off with. And then uh, maybe we can spend a little bit of time talking about the hunger that you're talking about uh, within organizations. Uh, So if you could differentiate, what what do those terms mean differently um, in the organizational context? Sure, happy to. So when I'm teaching people and organizations about the differences between diversity, equity, and inclusion, I start with the differences between diversity and inclusiveness. A lot of people think that inclusiveness is just a new word for diversity, but it isn't, as you and I well know. Diversity is about who you are as an organization. It's about the different people that you have in your company or your nonprofit or whatever it is, the different demographic groups that they represent. Inclusiveness, on the other hand, is what you do as an organization. And it's a process that actually has 
two components. The threshold level of work for inclusiveness is getting to the bottom of what I teach people are hidden barriers that are caused or inequities that are caused in large part by unconscious, unintentional biases that we all have. Of course, certainly we know that people also have conscious biases and those issues are still quite prevalent, unfortunately, in the workplace. But in larger measure, it's issues that are really in people's blind spots that they're not really even noticing or aware of that are causing even deeper harms, especially or disproportionately to people in already underrepresented groups. So diversity, traditional diversity efforts have been focused on getting the numbers up, getting people in the door to, you know, raise the representational levels to better reflect the larger communities. But the traditional diversity efforts have never worked and never will without inclusiveness. You need a focus on what's happening within the workplace to either make people feel included or excluded. What's happening with the culture of the organization, people's behaviors, and the processes that are in place that may despite people's best intentions, may actually perpetuate or hold up the hidden barriers and the inequities that people have to face on a daily basis. So traditional diversity efforts have been really focused on some people in an organization, usually people in under already underrepresented groups, whereas inclusiveness, that is a focus on everyone making sure that everyone in the organization is not running into those hidden barriers and can thrive within the organization. So actually, the metaphor that I like to use the most when I'm speaking about the differences between diversity and inclusion comes from an educator at the University of Denver. But I recall him clearly saying, diversity is about counting people, which is important, But inclusiveness is about making people count. When everyone in the organization can feel that they are valued, they have a seat at the table, they have a voice, they're respected, they're included in pertinent meetings and decisions and the social fabric of the organization, et cetera. That's when you can unleash the benefits of diversity that you have within your organization. If you don't add inclusiveness to the mix, you're not going to ever have a situation where diversity is sustainable. Now, the equity piece comes into play. And, you know, we didn't, we, meaning consultants in the DEI space, we really didn't add the word equity until, unfortunately, until the national profile around George Floyd's murder happened. Uh, before then, it was really just D and I. Now, I would, all, I would always argue that inclusiveness is about, fundamentally, about creating equity in an organization. So the threshold level of work, if you're doing inclusiveness, 
you're finding those hidden barriers and inequities. You're addressing bias, whether it's conscious or unconscious. If you're not doing that work in an organization, you're not doing inclusiveness. A lot of people have just threw the word inclusiveness on their website, on their diversity page, and called it a day because they didn't understand that inclusiveness really centered on making processes, cultures, and people's behaviors more equitable. So anyway, I'm happy now that we have a spotlight on equity and that it's been added to the mix. Equity is all about fairness and giving people fair and equal access to the opportunities that they need at work to be as successful as they could possibly be. Thank you for helping our listeners understand that, you know, diversity, equity, inclusion isn't this, um, you know, they aren't synonyms for each other, but rather very specific, very different concepts that create a larger organizational uh, structure around these issues. Um, the, the second thing that I wanted to uh, um ask you about, based on your first um, response, was this idea that there is a hunger for this work within organizations. Um, And I'm wondering if in your experience, that hunger is also backed up by the commitment of resources and valuing this work as something important and necessary, right? There's certainly uh, a phenomenon that we're seeing where a lot of this work is done in nonprofit sectors, but not necessarily at the same degree in the in the Fortune 500s, where you know they make a lot of money, but then quite not quite willing to spend that kind of money in this work. Um, Given your experience uh, working in consultation, do you see that trend? Do you see that shifting uh, by any chance? So this is really interesting. When I'm contacted, I'm often contacted by someone who is at a lower level in an organization. Because leaders of organizations, whether they're corporations, law firms, even in the government, even in nonprofits, leaders have traditionally outsourced any responsibility that has to do with diversity to other people in the organization. So they're thinking, they're thinking in 20th century terms, like, well, it's all about recruiting. So, you know, we've got an HR manager, we have a a recruiting committee, you know, they're going to take care of it. Leaders have never had any real responsibility when it comes to especially traditional diversity efforts. So this is a real shift here in the 2020s, you know, trying to leave that old school notion behind. Because when you add inclusiveness, inclusiveness touches every aspect of the organization. It doesn't matter if you're government agency or a nonprofit or a corporation, every single aspect of the organization is implicated when you add inclusiveness to the mix. So leaders must lead on inclusiveness. 
they have to devote the resources. They have to be actively engaged in uncovering those hidden barriers and inequities in actively or activating the diversity in the organization by putting together diverse teams of people to garner some of the business benefits that we know from over 200 research studies now that organizations benefit tremendously from having diverse teams working in inclusive environments. So the, we're, we're sort of at a transition point where leaders are beginning to understand that this is a new day, a new proposition. They can't pursue their efforts around diversity as they have in the past. They've, they've got to change things. And, and this is where fundamental, deep level change has to happen in an organization. And I think that leaders, many leaders are coming to understand that. And, you know, some of the, some of the issues, I have to disagree with you, honestly, that nonprofits are necessarily ahead of companies in this work because there's a resource issue on the nonprofit side as well. So for example, I've been working with a couple of nonprofits in New Mexico recently, and I'm actually going to be traveling there next week to continue that work. And they have, they have funding issues, just like any nonprofit. So for example, I have to do that work, and I'm glad to do that work at deeply discounted rates. But you know, they're not, I'm not seeing nonprofits hiring, for example, chief diversity, equity, and inclusion officers, because the, the funding just isn't there. And I think, you know, the, the companies actually, many companies, not all companies, obviously, but many companies have more financial re resources and are actually hiring a lot more uh, chief DEI officers to sort of lead this work. So it's kind of a mixed bag, you know, uh, companies are led by people who may not understand the necessity for adding inclusiveness. And I do a lot of training of leaders of organizations. That's actually my sweet spot, where I, I like to train leaders first so that they can digest this content and start using the tools to create changes behind the scenes before they roll out the changes and roll out broader educational opportunities to the rest of the organization. So having said all that, the hunger that I see is primarily driven by people in lower levels of organizations because in many respects, leaders are still stuck in the past in terms of their thinking. You know, that. It's really, you know, something that can be handled by someone else in the organization. And I, just the heartbreaking stories that come from people who want to stay at their organization, but the proposition is becoming more and more untenable. The first story that comes to mind is an African-American female attorney working for a law firm that was patting itself on the back because they had the highest number of African-American attorneys in, in their firm. But at the same time, in my conversations with her, you know, that I learned that most of those people were deeply, 
deeply unhappy to be there because of the microaggressions that they were facing and the hidden barriers that they were having to overcome on a daily basis. But the managing partner of the firm, a white male attorney, he, he just thought they were great because they had a high number of African-American attorneys. Anyway, she was able to convince him and the other leaders of the, of the law firm that they needed more education around DEI. And they went through my 10-hour course, the whole leadership group of that law firm. And it became clear that he was still quite resistant. And she, she left the firm shortly thereafter. I mean, this was kind of like her last bid or pitch to try to get change to happen in that organization. And when it became clear to her that it was never going to happen, as long as that leadership group was in place, she left for another opportunity. And, you know, honestly, I'm not sure what it's going to take to eventually change his mind. Is it the the wholesale loss of all these African-American attorneys? That might be the tipping point or the nudge that creates a, a need to change. I don't know. Yeah, I think, you know, the the resistance to this work is very real, uh, right? Like we see it uh, almost every day. Um, and I'm curious, um, you know, what is the argument you make to a, a leadership uh, in a corporate entity, right? Like for, for DEI practitioners, it's clear that, you know, if you don't do this work, you don't get to tap into talents from minoritized communities. If you don't do this work, you don't get to tap into the market, the consumers from, uh, you know, historically underrepresented communities. Um, but how do you kind of offset that to say your investment in this is necessary in order for you to do that, even if... Um, you encounter some of those resistance. So what is your argument in a leadership room uh, in a corporate entity? What does that sound like? I have a number of tools in my toolkit that I can pull out to persuade people. What I've learned over the past, you know, two plus decades doing this work is it's not productive to walk through the front door often. I mean, this is a metaphor. Coming straight at them through the front door will often make them feel threatened. And the minute that someone feels threatened, they're dumped into their lower brain. And nothing productive comes when people's amygdala is being triggered. Instead, I have figured out that if you go through the side door and come at them a little bit differently, that I've had a lot more success doing that. So first of all, I think you have to approach this work with understanding a little bit more about how people's brains work. So I've heard stories recently from some of my clients that People who are doing this work are into putting people in that threat state, 
you know, with the blaming and the shaming. I heard from one of the nonprofits in New Mexico, one of the board members said that he serves on a board of another nonprofit and the consultant that was hired came in and said, my purpose here today is to make white people feel uncomfortable. Well, what's that going to do but put people in a state of mind where they feel threatened and nobody learns when they're in that state? So I think it would benefit people to approach this work completely differently from, from a place of compassion and from understanding that if you want to make any progress, you have to intellectually engage people, present them with information that may help them shift their mindsets and also engage them emotionally, but in a positive way. And that's where people really, they, they want to be in that space, you know, because that feels better than, than feeling, you know, that they're being blamed or shamed or people are pointing fingers at them. But, but they also are, you know, more apt to listen and take in the information and maybe shift their thinking. So I've created some exercises that are really powerful in helping people understand how an organization full of good, well-intentioned people could have these inequities that are playing out, especially on an unconscious basis, on, on a daily basis, and what then they can do to actually counter some of these problems that they know are draining the organization because you know if you have unchecked inequities and hidden barriers are thriving in your organization you're going to have people leaving and in these in these times where attrition rates are high to begin with organizations really can't afford for people to be leaving especially for reasons that could be addressed so i i show people how some of these hidden barriers can be operating in their organizations. I expose them to research studies that are really eye-opening and intellectually engage them in thinking about these issues differently. And I actually am really, I've gotten to the point where I'm very, very skilled and successful in shifting the mindsets of senior white male decision makers. Because until you can do that, nothing, not one thing is going to change in an organization that is dominated by senior white male decision makers. So that's when my soul's mission, that's when my heart sings, is at the end of a session, for example, having a senior white male leader come up and say, I never thought about it that way before. You really have changed my thinking on this topic. That's, that's when I know that I've achieved a significant milestone in my soul's mission. Thank you. Um, and I think you're right. The, the larger uh, ecosystem of organizations do depend on changing the hearts and minds of the, the cis white senior male because there's a lot of power uh, that's kind of invested in those spaces. 
I wonder, you've you mentioned the kind of hidden barriers, the unnoticed barriers that that exist within organizations. Uh, you've named a couple of those as the kind of unconscious implicit biases that individuals carry. What are some of those other barriers that are more entrenched in the system itself? What, what would some of those look like? Mm-hmm. So there's a lot of research I'll I'll just reference the research that's in the legal profession, but this research spans all kinds of different professions. And in the legal industry, there have been over a dozen national research studies that clearly identify 10 common hidden barriers that are operating in law firms, corporate law departments, even government legal agencies as well. And what they are is people in already underrepresented groups. So in the legal industry, when I say that, I'm I'm referencing women, even though 50% or more of law school classes these days are comprised of women, they represent such a ridiculously small percentage of leaders in legal organizations and equity partners. So they have relatively very little power in the legal profession in general. So women in leadership roles, LGBTQ attorneys, attorneys with disabilities, and attorneys of color. Those are the four groups that the legal profession is really focused on. Anyway, these national research studies show that people in those groups have disproportionately less access to critical but intangible career opportunities. So for example, networking. They may be invited less often to go to an external networking event where you could potentially meet with important clients or or future clients to, to grow your network of people that you know. And then internally, the research shows that their networks within their organization are smaller and comprised of people with less power and influence. So how does that hidden barrier play out? In law firms in particular, it's all about who you know, whether you inherit a book of business, uh, an existing client relationship, when a more senior attorney retires, is gonna depend on your internal network. Whether you can build a book of business depends on whether you've got that external network that you can tap into and create relationships. And there's research that shows that women and attorneys of color are not in the line of succession for leadership roles in law firms, as well as those books of business and client relationships. So that that one hidden barrier right there really strangles a person's opportunities for career advancement in a law firm. On top of that, the research shows that attorneys in those underrepresented groups have less access to insider information because they tend to be insiders less often themselves or have relationships with people who are insiders. And if you don't know what you don't know, that can really hold you back in your career also. They have less access to insiders. Um, They have 
uh, fewer of those stretch work assignments that help you build the skills to eventually be promoted. They have fewer mentors and sponsors, especially mentors and sponsors that have a lot of power and can advocate for them and clear the way, clear some of those hidden barriers out of their way. Um, um, They get less feedback uh, of a critical and constructive nature. In fact, actually, they get more soft feedback where the evaluator is holding back and not really engaging them in a conversation that will help them improve. Uh, Other hidden barriers include client contact and let's see, what have I missed? There are probably a couple of others that I've missed, but ultimately, attorneys in underrepresented groups are not promoted at the same rates as attorneys in majority groups because at the end of the day, you end up not being promotable, like legitimately not promotable because you've had less access all along to these intangible career opportunities. You haven't had the high profile work assignment. You don't have the book of clients that you really need. You you haven't been mentored. Nobody's stepped up to be your sponsor and advocated for you, et cetera, et cetera. So those are some of the the hidden issues that I educate people about, especially in legal organizations. But these these inequities, these systemic barriers to progress exist in any kind of organization. Yeah, I think that rings true even outside the the legal profession. Uh, You know, I'm thinking about, uh, you know, some friends and colleagues that I've had in financial services industries, and they speak about it in very similar ways in terms of this kind of inside, uh, you know, in-group, out-group dynamic that plays out where people from historically marginalized communities frequently find themselves in uh, the out-group. And I remember reading um, another uh, research study that looked at the American C-suite and looked at the percentage of um, BIPOC and underrepresented communities versus the percentage of people who are affiliated to largely white Greek organizations. And there, again, the dynamic of networks uh, come into play and how it influences how far you climb up the ladder and what kind of accesses you have. So I think what you're saying rings true even outside law firms and and legal institutions. Um, I'm wondering if we can uh, switch a little bit. A lot of what we've talked about is looking inside an organization's And I'm wondering if we can look external to the organizations. Um, What is your take on kind of industry and organizations' responsibility to speak into kind of local and national trends around inclusion, Uh, right? Like the most recent example is, of course, uh, Yay or Kanye West and, and the Adidas uh, Corporation, right? They had this very public divorce after some anti-Semitic uh, rhetoric that came from 
Kanye West. And we're seeing this kind of tension play out where organizations are willing to uh, to weigh in on these issues, but then we also have um, instances wh where, you know, for instance, the state of Texas passed a whole bunch of legislation that said, if organizations weigh in on something like climate change, then we're going to boycott you, right? So there's this tension that's playing out. Uh, I'm wondering what your take is on organizations' responsibility on weighing in on these uh, inclusion, equity, and justice issues. So there are a lot of motivations at play within an organization's leadership. You know, they have employees who come from various backgrounds, who have various identities and interests and stakes in some of you know, the societal issues that are happening that an organization's leadership feels responsible for responding to. So here's an example. The head of PricewaterhouseCoopers is a very exceptional man. I've forgotten his name. It's on the tip of my tongue. But he is such an impressive person. Over five years ago, back in 2017, he actually responded to what an incident that happened where his, he had a, um, there was a black male employee in Dallas who was shot and killed in his apartment by a white female police officer who walked into his apartment thinking it was her apartment. I mean, she'd clearly been drinking and, and you know, made a, a very fatal mistake by thinking that he was an intruder in her apartment and shooting and killing him. So his last name, I remember it's Tim Ryan, Tim Ryan. Anyway, he responded. He's one of the most authentic leaders of a company in the U.S. He responded by making really authentic statements about how harmful that kind of police brutality and, and in the larger context, police brutality was at that time. I mean, that predated George Floyd's murder in 2020. He actually went on to create what's called CEO Action for Diversity and Inclusion. It's a national nonprofit organization. Initially, he gathered up 150 CEOs of major companies to join him in founding this nonprofit. And it, it's not a feel-good pledge type of organization. There's actually a requirement that the companies who are members of the organization have to actually implement changes internally around DEI. So that initial group of 150 has exploded, especially after George Floyd's murder, and now includes, I think it's 2,600 companies and it growing every single day. Now, I know that many of those companies are led by people who aren't as passionate and authentic as Tim Ryan, but at least that creates an environment of corporate social responsibility for that group. And any group that wants to be playing at that level. So I'm hopeful that that will, that will continue to spur some action where 
people, those companies are required to come up with DEI action plans and submit them to their boards of directors to engage in unconscious bias training to begin making systemic changes in their companies. So I'm I'm a little bit hopeful, you know, but understand that, you know, it's the real world that people have to operate in. Now, companies are also being not only being responsive to their employees, but they have to be responsive to the people that they serve, the consumer or the, you know, whoever's buying their product or using their services or, or whatever. And they, they understand that larger society, you know, the people who are using their services, buying their products, et cetera, have an expectation of them that they will be operating ethically and morally and be responsive to some of these efforts, these very serious efforts to take away people's rights, to oppress them. So that's why you see many companies coming out with not just statements, but are beginning to do the deeper level work to change, to make fundamental changes. But, you know, if you're run of the mill company that's, that's led by someone with a lot of privilege, who has a lot of blind spots, who doesn't really, none of these societal issues really affects them on a daily basis. That's where there's opportunities to really get in front of those folks and try to educate them about things that they really aren't even thinking about. So I don't know if I answered your question. Um, If I didn't, let me know what aspects I still need to comment on. But this is a very complex, very long-term type of issue that, that... Individual companies and individuals within those companies and using those company services have to struggle with. And then looking at whether the companies are engaging in just check the box, performative types of efforts or digging deeper and trying to find out what what are those companies doing to actually walk the talk, not just talk the talk. And I think that Tim Ryan is an example of someone who's walking the talk. I think you answered the the questions that I was thinking about. And I think you also exposed some of the tensions, right? Like we we can't assume that everybody has the motivation to do the work and develop these uh, you know, comprehensive strategic plans that are actually going to change the dynamics of the organization. Um, but I also still remember, you know, immediately after the Dobbs decision came out, and then immediately after the the Texas abortion ban went into place, there was this deafening silence from a lot of organizations that were located in Texas, who said absolutely nothing not even the performative statement, right? Like even those were were hard to come by. So it, it leaves me wondering, are organizations ultimately going to do what is best for the bottom line if the 
if you know taking a stance on these inclusion and justice uh, um, dilemmas means the bottom line is compromised right uh, there there is a a line of thinking that says if you say the right thing or the wrong thing you run the risk of being cancelled you you run the risk of losing a, a consumer base therefore uh, let's just be silent right and we protect the bottom line so i'm wondering what your response to is to that what have you uh seen or heard in these kind of corporate circles in these board of trustees where you're going in talking about these issues is there commitment to the bottom line um overriding any kind of responsibility they have to the the moral good of of, of the people you know i have to be honest with you the folks that i'm working with are really internally primarily internally focused and they, there's a lot on their plate with just trying to not feel overwhelmed with how they need to change internally. And they're not really as focused on an external because I think it's more so, you know, the bigger companies that have, you know, the larger profile that are being looked to, to set examples and to, to, weigh in on some of these larger societal issues. Many of, for example, the law firms that I work with, the nonprofits, certainly the government agencies are not, you know, they, they're not stepping into that space because that wouldn't be appropriate uh, for them uh, beyond, you know, with the, their larger policy issues are, you know, the day-to-day work. And the, the folks at the at the lower levels of the organization are, aren't going to be doing that. But um, honestly, a lot of organizations that I'm working with are smaller and are not at the point where they can even begin to think about some of these issues. They're so overwhelmed with just getting their arms around the internal work that they, they're trying to pursue. And even when they, you know, get the education and begin to work on those priorities internally, um, that's really quite consuming for them. So I, I am not doing currently any work in Texas, which is should tell you something right there. <laughs> I, you know, let's, you know, the people who need me and want me will contact me, and and I will be helping them, uh, and whatever way they need help. But that's where I'm really focused is helping people change their organizations from within. And most of them just don't have the bandwidth right now to even begin to think more globally or at these larger societal issues and and making statements about that. Yeah, and I think, you know, if organizations do that work taking care of their own promoting uh, you know historically underrepresented people up to levels of leadership perhaps eventually will get to the point where they become kind of players on the local and the national stage uh, so uh, i think that makes sense um it, for me there's still a uh a degree of impatience, right? Like waiting for these people to uh, weigh in. 
because the, the, the question we constantly have to battle with is kind of DEI thinking incommensurable with bottom line thinking. Like, is it, is it a zero sum game where you gain, if you gain on one, you lose the other. And I think the, we're starting to get to the point where the answer to that is no, right? Like if you design correctly, if you market correctly, you you hire correctly, you retain correctly, you build an organization well, then you get access to markets that you didn't previously have. So I think I'll speak for myself in saying there's a degree of impatience to say, all right, get there already. We're tired of waiting. But I think I hear you saying, you know, they need to start internal first and they'll eventually get to that point. Does that does that sound true to you? Yes, largely. You know, it what are some of the levers though that you can pull? Like if you were a social change agent and really focused on getting larger organizations, especially to come on board and not just make statements, but, you know, put something behind it. What are some of the levers that you would begin to to pull? And I think it's really thinking about and creating the energy within, for example, social media that puts people in a position where they know that unless they come out with a statement or they they know that unless they begin to do the work authentically, that they're going to have some kind of repercussions. I mean, that's that's the stick approach, right? And then right. the carrot, the carrot approach is what kinds of what kinds of situations or social accountability could you create that would make people feel, you know, that some kind of positive energy for doing the work. So that, that's kind of more on a macro level. You know, I, I use those kinds of what are called nudges, inclusion nudges at a sort of a micro level with some of my clients. So inclusion nudges, nudges, the term nudges comes from the field of behavioral economics where, you know, Richard Thaler and Cass Sunstein, yeah. very noteworthy economists came up with this notion that you can kind of nudge people toward a, making a better choice. And one of them in the area of inclusiveness, which has, has co-opted that notion of nudging, there's what's called a feel the need nudge. And so you can use this internally. And I coach my leadership groups to use feel the need nudges to, to create more urgency to change. Because people don't change the status quo or what already, you know, if they're comfortable in what's happening, they don't change. They won't change. So social change agents, whether they're operating sort of at a macro level or a micro level, have to be very strategic in thinking about, well, what would these folks respond to? Like, where are their pain points? What do they need or want? to be more successful themselves. What could you either, what kind of pain could you inflict if you're using the stick approach or you know, what kind of benefit or reward could you put into place if you were using a carrot approach? So th- this is actually why 
we need to educate more people who have the ability to think strategically around DEI, because a lot of people are thinking just, you know, like technically or, um, you know, just, just at a very a lower level about how to make change happen. And, and I think it, it's these field and need nudges can, can really be powerful if they're implemented well. And, I, you know, I know that there are a lot of social justice organizations that are using these kinds of nudges to put companies or other kinds of organizations in a situation where they have to do something, even if it hurts their bottom line. Because I know, for example, Coca-Cola and Walmart responded in Georgia. And that, I'm sure those efforts, that response to the voter suppression efforts in Georgia, I'm sure that that ended up hurting their bottom line. But they did it anyway because of the situation that they found themselves in and just having to have, having to respond. Um, so I don't envy any of those corporate leaders who are put in this situation and have to feel the tension, you know, being responsive to shareholders, being responsive to employees, being responsive to the community and being pulled in a million different um, directions. Absolutely. And we can hope that, you know, the, the ways of thinking that DEI advocates and professionals are trying to advance will help these leaders make those choices when they are these competing poles and uh, intentions, right? Um, um, absolutely. So Kathleen, we've been talking for almost an hour now. Um, so, uh, and, and I think we've covered a lot of terrain, um, but I want to give you the chance to kind of close out with any, uh, any observations or wisdom that you think can influence how organizations and leaders uh, take this work on. Where do they start? Um, how do they start? So I love working with beginners that are, you know, just starting this work out fresh. And they're generally the clients that I end up working with are very eager to learn more because you can't make any progress on DEI unless you engage in some deeper level education. Because if, if you don't have the education, you're resorting back to old school understanding and 20th century ideas about how to pursue this work. And that will never lead to any kind of success. So I, I want to share with you, I just got Frank Dobbin and Alexander Caleb's, Caleb's new book, Getting to Diversity, What Works and What Doesn't. And so I just want to share with you a list of their findings because these are two of the foremost experts in this field. And they have done an immense amount of research to identify the practices that actually that organizations can implement that will actually lead to higher levels of representation in the organization. 
So first of all, they recommend that you form a DEI task force or committee. And leaders can't just say, oh, lower level folks, you just go ahead and form a task force or committee. It has to be populated in part by leaders of the organization who are active participants on that task force. Hiring DEI directors who have direct lines of access to the head of the organization, to the CEO. So a lot of organizations, in organizations that haven't had this education and don't really understand how to initiate a modern day DEI initiative, not an old school initiative, leaders don't really understand that you have to have a separate head for diversity, equity, and inclusion. You can't put it in the HR office. And that person who leads that office has to be have a lot of gravitas and ability to go toe-to-toe with other leaders in the organization and report directly to the CEO. You have to really elevate the profile and the work and integrate DEI into all of the business functions of the organization and make all leaders accountable and responsible for accomplishing DEI DEI goals. Another thing that they, um, Dobbin and Caliph came up with was that you have to have leaders, managers, and supervisors creating their own DEI goals and have accountability for achieving those goals. Whether that accountability is in their annual performance review, whether their compensation is tied to the achievement of that goal, you know, whatever the the accountability is. If leaders don't have, aren't being held accountable, nothing will change. They also said that it's important for managers and supervisors to become actively engaged in the recruiting effort. Because when they go to HBCUs, for example, and get to meet students in underrepresented groups and actually end up hiring some of them, they, that those relationships with people who are different from you break down stereotypes and unconscious biases. And they also take ownership of that relationship, which can end up in like sponsorship, which is critically important that that start happening instead of staying within their affinity groups. So I think, I think that was an important finding. They also said that you have to staff projects in a way that require people from different backgrounds and social identity groups to actually work together because that's critically, the research shows that that's critically important in terms of helping you change your mind and break down um, stereotypes and biases. Debiasing processes. So this is where the systemic change comes within organizations is taking a process like recruiting and hiring and literally blowing it up and reconstructing it so that you build in bias interrupters and DEI concepts into that process. So that that's those are called inclusion process nudges. And I teach my clients about how to do those and what what organizations are doing to de-bias those processes and get at that deeper level systemic inequities that are happening. 
And then lastly, they recommended that you utilize metrics in the organization that are designed to uncover hidden barriers and inequities. And I've created a maturity model, a tool that helps organizations benchmark. Are they at level one, which is basically a compliance-oriented organization? Like at level one, a company doesn't really care about diversity. They just are complying with whatever laws and regulations make them do certain things. Are they at level two, which is an organization that has traditional diversity efforts and focuses a lot on recruiting or at level three? And it's only at level three where you add, where you add inclusiveness. And that is that level is called leader-owned diversity, equity, and inclusion because leaders are now taking responsibility for fundamentally changing the organization or at level four, which is a fully inclusive organization. Now, most of my work is with organizations that are at levels one and two. They want to try to move from levels one and two to level three and advance DEI that way. But anyway, this maturity model tool that I've created allows you to assess your organization and and identify what areas, what level you're at overall and what aspects of your organization you you may be at a lower level and need to do certain things to move up to levels three and four. So that's a metric, that's a, a tool that's actually used to benchmark progress in uh, DEI that that organizations could potentially use. But those are the fundamentals. And so if you're an organization that's brand new to DEI, I would recommend that you get this new book, Getting to Diversity, What Works and What Doesn't, reading it, and then starting your journey by getting educated, by learning more about DEI. Because I'm not running into a lot of people that have had any coursework whatsoever, or any, or really any extensive experience in DEI. And by the way, I have a bone to pick. Organizations are hiring people. They're putting people in these roles. Many times it's a person of color who has no experience, no education beyond maybe leading an employee resource group for their organization. Now, I am not discounting that experience. But they're setting people up to fail. And and sometimes I wonder if it's not purposeful that they're not hiring people who have a lot of background and experience and education in DEI. Because what we're seeing is a churning of DEI directors. Like they stay for a couple of years and then they're gone because the organization leadership isn't fully on board. You know, they're paying lip service to DEI. They're putting someone in that position, but not really giving that person the power to make any real change happen. And and they don't have the education or the background to be able to, or or the power to, to make any change, significant change. So anyway, there's so much work to be done and so much opportunity. And this is what I love to do every day. And I'm gonna do until my very last breath is try to help people 
move the needle, make a difference so that people in underrepresented groups don't have to go to work every day and be subjected to what is in large part unintentional, but it's still just as hurtful, micro inequities and microaggressions and oppression and lack of progress in their careers. Yeah, in uh, in our very first podcast, we talk precisely about this kind of uh, figurehead model for DEI, where you hire this figurehead within your organization, usually someone from a uh, historically underrepresented community, but then there's no infrastructure or support or power or agency or resources granted to them, which inevitably leads to them burning out and failing. Uh, so that phenomenon, we, we definitely see. Um, but Kathleen, thank you so much for your time and your wisdom and for your work, uh, right? Like we don't, um, we don't take that for granted. There, there, you're right, there is a lot of work to be done and um, I'm glad there are people like you doing that work. So thank you so much for joining uh, our, our episode and for your time and your wisdom. It's been my deep honor and pleasure. Thank you so much for the invitation to share and for allowing me the opportunity to talk about my favorite topic. Indeed, thank you. Equity work is difficult work that is worth doing. It is done in community and it is a responsibility we all carry.